Sandeep Das Gupta. Sandeep Das Gupta is the Vice President of R&D Gaming Systems at Scientific Games. In his IT career since 1992, he played various roles including leading architecture efforts as a lead architect, heading multiple teams involved in product and platform development, as well as heading R&D in advanced technologies. Sandeep is also an avid technology watcher and shares his views on his personal blog. So, yeah, welcome Sandeep to the Software Lifecycle Stories. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I think it is going to be an interesting conversation. I see that you have a lot of uh, different ways of looking at software, particularly the natural software. We'll get into that. Mm-hmm. But maybe for the uh, purpose of introduction, if you can briefly state how you got into software and then what you've been doing, you can take it from there. Great. Yeah, I think that's a good beginning and that's kind of uh, related to uh, how I look at software itself, right? So, um, interestingly, I actually uh, started out becoming a mechanical engineer because I used to be very interested in mechanics and and automobiles and, and engines and all that, right? And then as part of the curriculum, I think in the second year, we got introduced to programming uh, Fortran and C and all that mm. to help us sort of work with uh, engineering problems, right? Okay. And suddenly, I kind of found a new love in a way, right? So, I mean, when I started, I mean, I had done a bit of uh, BBC micro uh, programming in school and all that. We used okay. to get. Uh, sort of uh, science projects and all that. Uh, but it, that had been more like fun and games. And mm. when I started doing serious computing um, in, in, in um, the uh, mini frames in those times, uh, we, we kind of, uh, we started with mainframes in our uh, labs, but then we went, went on to mini frames. I mean, I kind of saw the power, the real power of software and computing and all. At that point, I suddenly had a change of heart and I said, I, I want to follow this route rather than the other one. Right? So even though I kind of graduated as a, as a mechanical engineer, I did a lot of work in computers. I mean, then I finally went on to take on robotics as my final year uh, sort of uh, specialization. So we did a lot of um, programming in C, etc. to uh, kind of program uh, robotic arms and stepper motors and all that and mm. and and also then went to do a sort of uh, industry experience uh, uh, tour with uh, uh, with the defense research development organization where mm. we did some programming for their uh, computerized uh, um, machine tools uh, built some uh, it, it was interesting we built some parts for uh, some of the agni missiles etc so that's how I kind of managed to stay with computers, even though I was kind of graduating as a mechanical engineer. And then later, after I started working, I obviously um, gravitated towards the software industry because by then I had already decided that was my first love. So. Oh, good. So how did you find the shift from Fortran to C? Huh, very interesting. <laughs> I have to uh, program in Fortran. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think if you if you know uh, Fortran, uh, you would know that it's built um, in a, in a very or it is built to be very. Uh, it it's built to be a good fit for mathematical and and sort of uh, structured mathematical problems and, and that kind of thing. Right? So and and we were using it mostly for that. Uh, so uh, obviously. If you if you know the expansion, it's actually formula translation, right? So it tells you <laughs> everything about what it's meant for, right? Mm. And and it was great to automate and speed up and and do complex mathematics and all that. But the moment I moved to C, I kind of um, realized that that time what we are talking about today, right? We are, we talk about experience as a major thing today, but that's when I realized how it was different, right? With C, when I was, for example, I was doing, uh, uh, let's say for a, uh, for a robotic uh, arm, I was doing a lot of computation to figure out what is the most efficient route for an arm to move from point A to point B when, when it needs to do some work, right? I mean, they obviously, they did, you actually do a 3D plot of it and you figure out the shortest path and all that, right? And that's done through mathematical formula. Mm -hmm. uh, but not only that, with C, now I could actually plot it out on a graph and show it graphically on a screen that this is the route that the arm is going to take and, and uh, kind of this is how it will move and this is the area it's going to cover and all that, right? So that's, I think, one of the differences that I saw where, where uh, programming languages that have both computational and graphical capabilities, you get uh, get you get that power uh, out of it, right? Uh, the second thing is obviously C is much more open. It has a lot more sort of um, depth to its libraries, and also I could actually borrow libraries uh, from others who've kind of done similar things and all that. And obviously, it depends on the community too. Uh, so Fortran obviously had a smaller community by then. I mean, C had become much more. Uh, widely accepted, so it had a much larger community. So I could obviously get um, help from that community. So that that obviously is a difference. And then when object-oriented programming came in, obviously that made a huge difference, right? So then that was the third sort of jump where Fortran obviously didn't have those kind of concepts, and C slowly sort of picked up the object-oriented concepts and 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 the and then you kind of started seeing it as a fourth generation language rather than a third generation language. Though it is really a third generation, but it slowly transformed itself with C++ and all that into a fourth gen. So those would be, I think, the key differences I see between those kind of languages. Yeah, that's interesting. So from um, the theme of uh, this podcast, was there any funny things that happened when your thinking had to change from a fairly linear you know, Fortran model to this whole object-oriented, distributed, or your uh, visual programming and all that. Yeah, yeah. So I think uh, that that's, I mean, um, obviously, uh, when we talk about the jump from non-object to object, we obviously give away our um, um, age because that we are talking about more than 20 years ago when this transition happened. In today's world, we kind of, we don't, think about that at all, right? Because everything has kind of moved to the new paradigms. So uh, um, let me give you a kind of uh, small 
sort of story about that. Um, one of my first jobs was sort of programming for the National Stock Exchange in India, where we were doing these front ends for uh, the traders, the trader terminals. Uh, and it was all uh, um, object-oriented uh, visual C++ at that time. And um, kind of, um, I, I was still thinking in a way in the, in the sort of traditional uh, sort of structured programming model because I was kind of coming, I was, I was getting to realize uh, C sort of object-oriented programming at that point uh, uh, based on my experience. And um, the, the way I used to sort of structure my thinking uh, would be uh, in a workflow model, right? And uh, and then uh, when we used to sit down with the uh, with the business analysts and the business folks um, across the table, uh, we would become kind of talking different languages, right? So I would be saying, "Hey, hey the 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 stock actually, or or the particular uh, stock that that we are trying to buy, for example, taking one example." goes from state A to state B to state C, right? So it's, it's an open stock in the market and then it is, uh, somebody has sort of uh, put, put, uh, put a buy order against it, then it is in that state, then somebody has already bought it, so it's a bought state and all that. And the business folks would be talking about, hey, I'm looking at a chart and I, I, I want to see which stocks are going up and then I kind of click on it and I kind of look at that particular stock and then I see what are the similar stocks in the same industry and all that, right? So we used to be almost like talking in two different uh, languages and it, it became very difficult to kind of uh, get to the, get to a common ground. And then when I, then I realized that um, I had to change my way of looking at things, right? So they were obviously looking at the real world um, sort of, uh, picture of, 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 of a stock. And that's exactly what object orientation does, right? It kind of creates a real world view of uh, who, what are the different types of objects in the world. And I was looking at it from, uh, it's just a data piece of data and what can I do with it in a program? Right? So um, I would say the, the funny part was that um, the business folks taught me how to do object orientation rather than a, than a technical guru and a technical mentor, right? So I kind of look at it that way that uh, talking to business actually forced me to become a better object-oriented programmer rather than the other way. Yeah, that's very interesting that you also mentioned data. I guess as engineers, we are focused on things that are in a hard that we can grasp and just the data Whereas probably the business folks are looking at how do I derive some information, how do I act on it, and what are you know, some of the newer, all this machine learning or uh, finding meaning behind data. Correct, correct. But in a way, we have come full circle, right? So from that point, so that's that's the interesting part. And I think I have a blog about this where it's it's always a deja vu kind of thing, right? You you keep seeing thing, you keep seeing things which seem to be uh, a new avatar of old stuff, right? So it's, it's the same here. So we went from 
I mean, going back to your previous question, right? Fortran was more about data and manipulation. C was a little more uh, sort of higher level where you were trying to structure it into maybe functions and, 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 and procedures, right? And then C++ came in and they said, hey, forget data, it's all objects, right? And the data is actually encapsulated within objects. Or it's more like data is a behavior of an object, right? Mm, so yeah. it's, it's, it's just properties. Now we've come full circle back to saying, hey, we want data first design. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, hey, hold on. I mean, you kind of said we want to go to a real world model where objects are everything. And I'm, I'm, I'm modeling my real world as objects. And now you're going back and saying, no, we want a data first design. So what does it mean, right? So I think it's, it's kind of uh, a realization that we are, we are able to build better computer and, and software systems because uh, we are un underlying the whole thing. We are finally manipulating data, right? I mean, even though we are building object models, even though we are building great GUI uh, software, underneath the whole thing, power is in knowing and manipulating the data. And all we are saying is, kind of let's let's go back to realize how much power that data gives us and how do we get more and more uh, value from that data that we already have and the other things obviously i mean which all with all such things um, it's the same story right uh, it's it's always a perfect uh, coming together of different things right so it's not only that 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 realization has come to us it's also because we are also in a world today where there is a plethora of data and we are sitting off on gazillions of uh, bytes of data. And we also have the compute power and the, and the cloud systems to be able to manipulate income. Right? So when all three come together, then we can now start talking about data first. But I mean, I think uh, if, if, if the capability to work on those uh, huge volumes of data and the, uh, uh, and the kind of, um, availability or, or easy availability of years worth of data wasn't there, then again, it wouldn't have been possible. So it's, I think, a combination of all. Yeah, interesting. Now, the two questions or thoughts that you know, crossed my mind were, uh, you know, one related to your current role. Mm -hmm. that probably every game probably generates so much data in real time that needs to be processed mm -hmm. both by the computers as well as the players. Right, right. So this huge jump in data, and associated with that, you also mentioned uh, the concept of modeling. Right. You remember one quote, uh, I forget who said that first, is about uh, all models are wrong, but some models are more useful. Right, right. When we do that, um, the natural, okay, it is not intended, but uh, I thought the natural consequence is that the model should be as close to reality as possible. Right. So I was quite uh, uh, intrigued first when I you know, saw your blogs on natural software engineering. Right. So how did you get to that concept or you know, what kind of triggered the thought behind natural software? Okay, I think good question. <laughs> so yeah, I've, I've, I've been asked many times why I chose that kind of a, a juxtaposition of words in a way, right? And that's, that's one of the reasons I chose it because 
engineering is always supposed to be a hard materialistic um, sort of man's world of things right i mean <laughs> it kind of it, it's it's around construction and machinery and and minerals and uh, building uh, huge factories and all that right so that's where when you say engineering you, those are the pictures that come into mind on the other hand when you say software it's all about the soft stuff right it's the concepts it's the software it's the uh, it's the sort of uh, all the finer details that go behind uh, our, our computers and, and, and the logic that we build in right so it's it's these are sort of poles apart and and bringing those two together is sort of and i i wanted to create that clash of uh, ideas and knowingly because i wanted to sort of uh, get people to think about how we are realizing that the software industry is built on people right uh, from all aspects right mm -hmm. and even though we are calling it software engineering we have to we keep forgetting it and that's why i wanted to remind people that we have to keep remembering that this is an engineering which is done using concepts by people and using sort of uh, malleable logic in a way right which is contrasted with other forms of engineering which are based on physical laws science scientific uh, properties material properties are built mostly or 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 are done mostly by machines and sort of um, non human uh, activities and they work on physical materials right they work on concrete and steel and and iron and um, sort of uh, uh, things with physical properties right. uh, which are not malleable right and one 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 great example i give is if i build a bridge with four lanes and and a customer comes and tells me next day hey i just want to expand it to six lanes it it would be a laughable request right but if i have built a, a software a piece of software which kind of handles four types of protocols today uh, for data traffic and somebody comes and tells me hey add two more protocols because i want to now handle two more uh, channels of data it is a very simple request and and a very uh, understandable request right so mm -hmm. so that's the difference i want to bring out that both of these are engineering but but the things you are doing with the older forms of engineering the traditional forms of engineering are very different from what you are doing with software engineering because of the properties that's one aspect that this is kind of uh, people based and it has certain uh, sort of conceptual differences right and then there are other things that have been happening recently which is which are taking us closer and closer to these things so one thing is this whole agile concept right and uh if you look at the first principle of agile which says people over processes and tools right and and a lot of times people think that agile is just another software engineering process so the i wanted to bring people back to the thought process that the first principle says people is people over processes and tools because they realize that when you are doing or when you are building products using people 
your process has to be in a way people friendly in, in a way taking into consideration what mm -hmm. makes people work better what makes uh, what is what is it that would get give you the most outcome out of a, a team working together right so it's mm -hmm. it's kind of built upon a bit of uh, 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 human psychology how people work together as teams um, what would make teams uh, sort of self organizing and all that right so those are the aspects that are built into the process so so even the engineering processes that we have started sort of going towards are now understanding that software is a natural process built upon our, our natural thinking process and it should take into account that uh, uh, we, we, we behave differently from machines right so that's one of well, that's the second aspect the third aspect is since you talked about data and 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 sort of how we are kind of uh, trying to build real world models with with the data right so if you go there so let's see where technology is going there right so today we are talking about um, sort of microservice uh, swarms or or farms cloud farms of uh, sort of uh, servers and all that right mm -hmm. so we we kind of going back to copying nature by saying hey if you break down your large complex workloads into small individual self driven uh, entities and then bring them together to build larger systems you will have much better control and and i think we are copying from maybe uh, swarms of bees or ant colonies or fish schools or whatever right so if you see nature has those kind of models and we are kind of copying those kind of models the second thing that is happening with artificial intelligence today right is we are trying to mimic the human brain and what we are realizing is that um, there are certain things that are still unexplainable or not really doable through artificial intelligence there there are things like consciousness and and an independent thought which obviously machines cannot be taught yet obviously they might be able to later but we we are trying we are we are kind of getting to the point where we are realizing that there is still a a, a barrier between uh what data engineering can do versus what a conscious thinking natural uh, uh human being or, or 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 a mammal can do right so so these are the different thought processes that kind of went through my mind and i i just wanted to bring all of these out into the open by coining a term like natural software engineering basically hmm. yeah that's that sounds natural a natural flow of uh, inference so uh, again a couple of questions triggered by this the first is uh, uh, you know have you tried any experiments in your own in a teams or projects in applying some of these natural ways of working and the second um, probably more even um, when you talk about the ant colony and things like there is one mastermind you know, like are we getting into the big brother model where all technology will eventually be controlled by one artificially intelligent brain okay yeah i think both very good questions so let me take them one at a time 
the first one the answer is yes i try to i mean this is this has been the most interesting part of my work in in uh, uh, in a few of the companies that i've been part of since i started this uh, thought process of natural software engineering right so as you know most of our organizations we are trying to move to agile and i've been deeply involved in a couple of cases where i've tried to bring in agile into a system which was not having it before so i have had a lot of opportunities to experiment if you will <laughs> okay so uh, yeah. one of the things that i have been uh, working with is how do we make teams really uh, self organizing and and kind of uh, um, opposite of what you said there is no central uh, governing authority right so right. let them go off on their own and create their own uh, stories right so um, and I'm, i'm using stories in a generic sense and not in an agile sense here by the way so uh, that that has been a very interesting experiment because um, the moment you take teams and say hey you are a self governing self organizing team and um, this is a new model i'm giving you work in an agile model and and um, sort of show us what you can do right it always uh, brings in lot more enthusiasm lot more energy lot more uh, new ideas and and kind of um, i would say even changes the culture to a certain extent and i'm very sure you've seen that in your personal experience too um so um and and the coming back to the experiment part um i kind of have have seen that um the, the interesting part and this is something i keep talking about is even though we say this is natural software engineering and it is tuned to the way we behave uh the most interesting thing i see is that we have been sort of um trained and 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 sort of molded so much into the box right mm -hmm. that we have actually forgotten our natural uh, uh i mean our natural instincts are almost dead and we have been kind of told to do certain things that way right so the most interesting thing that i see is people having to unlearn what they have been taught and become natural is is actually a very tough task right you would think that hey i am giving you a better way of uh, i am giving you a process that is closer to how you should be uh, working and it will be easier for you to adopt but because of our conditioning of of years of conditioning from from our school days we are kind of taught that these are the formula you have to use this is the only leap way you should work uh, these are the golden rules you should never break and then you suddenly tell them hey there are no rules you you go and self organize that <laughs> takes a lot of time and learning so the unlearning and relearning uh, kind of becomes more difficult so that's that's an interesting side uh, effect that i see when i try to do these experiments so has there been an experiment that sorry. probably didn't go the way you anticipated but in hindsight is kind of funny um yeah let me try to think of a couple of instances uh uh so there there 
there has been let me let me talk about one case uh, where it was a little uh, funny uh, where we are trying to do we were trying to do uh, the same thing we were trying to build a new team uh, um, and and kind of move them to a new way of uh, uh, working and um, the the obviously the the teams kind of uh, have a lot of questions about what happens when they do this right and there are usually questions on how they would be monitored, um, how would they kind of be, uh, I mean, how would their performance be evaluated? If there is no manager in the team, how, how do they kind of show what they're doing and whom, they are, whom do they show it to and all that, right? Um, so um, in, in one case, uh, we, when one of the teams came back and said, um, we, we kind of are happy doing what you're asking us to do, uh, but uh, we would want to be sort of monitored a little more in the sense that oh. for, from a couple of reasons, right? One, we should be able to showcase what we are doing in the sense that if, unless somebody watches over me, how do I show them that I'm doing a great job? And in the second case, and the second reason being, um, I mean, if we are doing something wrong, somebody has to correct us, right? Okay. So, um, and so what I did was, uh, I kind of said, uh, fine, we, we, we have, I mean, and, uh, and it was a conference room. So we, we, we said, we will switch on this camera and we will put you in a conference with me and I'll be watching all your meetings, right? And, uh, and essentially what I did was we, we used to set up these meetings where I would be on conference and and I kind of used to just uh, switch off my side of things. I never really watched what they were doing. And uh, I think a couple of months later, they came back and said, hey, this is working great. After we have started doing this, <laughs> we are more efficient and all that. And obviously, once in a while, they would kind of have certain questions and I would go and talk to them about it. Uh, but, but in reality, there was nothing that changed. It was just their thought that, hey, somebody is watching over us. Right? Mm. So then I went back and told them, hey, uh, do you know what, 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 what was going on? I was actually not even watching what you, were, like, you guys were doing. And um, it was just uh, sort of uh, an, a thought experiment kind of thing, right? Where you thought that you are being mentored, but you're not uh, monitored, but you're not being monitored. And uh, it was funny when, when we kind of, when they realized it, it was kind of a uh, uh, aha moment for them, but it was also a very interesting um, sort of learning for all of us, right? That uh, going back to my point, right? That we have been conditioned in a, in a way that sometimes familiar is better than, uh, I mean, just because something is more familiar, it looks better, right? So that's that's what I finally told them, right? You've been so used and it's so familiar for you to have somebody watching over you that even though working on your own should be a much more empowering exercise, it becomes a, a, a sort of difficult thing to do because you've not been used to it and you've been conditioned against it. So that was one of the funny incidents that happened. Um, uh, but but uh, obviously, it's not something I... Uh, would advocate. <laughs> I mean, it is just that uh, for that team, it kind of 
uh, it was something I felt they would uh, learn from, and and it, it kind of happened that way. But uh, obviously, we, we don't we, in in agile uh, teams we do want people to work on their own, and there's there's no concept of monitoring. Yeah, sure. So yeah, uh, coming to your second question, right about um, Big Brother, whether all about the big, work together. big Brother watching you, right? So that's kind of becoming a very uh, if you are following uh, the uh, artificial intelligence, uh, um, machine learning uh, sort of uh, uh, discussions that are going on all over the world, that's becoming one of the most discussed topics, if you see. Right. Uh, that's always one thing that comes up, right? So um, is it good? Is it bad? Now it kind of allows you to sort of uh, uh, look at everything. Uh, there, I, I mean, I think I'm, I'm not really an expert in this area, but I, again, I'm, I'll just talk about my thoughts and my experience on that side. Um, I see that you're also a technology blogger. That's why I thought, you know, since you watched it, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah so this is, uh, this is definitely something worthwhile uh, to, to maybe uh, write about. Uh, but um, you will see two schools of thought uh, that, that are emerging, right? So one school of thought is that um, you, you kind of um, always have a single uh, governing uh, force, right? So even for us humans, if, if you look at it, the brain is always governing things, right? And, and the brain is finally taking decisions for our whole body based on all the inputs that it's getting and, and all the sensory uh, uh, data that is that it's receiving right and um, is it good or bad we don't know because i mean sometimes the brain takes right decisions sometimes obviously it takes wrong decisions too right but if there is no central uh, control at that point uh, maybe uh, the holistic decisions won't be possible right because you, you sometimes want to take a holistic decision, which is sort of based on everything that you're seeing rather than, I mean, even though, even though you have touched something hot and your local instinct is saying that, hey, snatch your hand back, your brain knows that, hey, this is a cup of tea that you're holding. And if you snatch your hand back, you're going to drop it and splash it all over the floor. So bear it with bear with it for a minute and put it on the table that's a better idea right so that's that's the kind of higher level decision that we can take right because we know uh, we, we're getting multiple inputs from different things uh, so i think it is similar right so uh, even in the organizational world in the in the computational world uh, sometimes having a higher level decision making works out because uh, you can then take a holistic view of multiple viewpoints and then kind of come to a decision which is uh, maybe in the best interest of uh, everybody at that point uh, but like i said it's 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 an it's an it's a debatable thing right i mean is that decision the best could it could it have been better that's not what we are debating i'm saying that that concept exists and then it sometimes works right uh, the other school of thought is that um, beyond a certain point, it's in any way going to get impossible with the with the with the kind of uh, huge growth of data and huge growth of or 
or, or the speed at which the data is growing, right? So I don't know whether you've heard, but there's a new terminology that is now uh, in use, which is called um, edge AI, right? So it's basically, if you've heard of edge computing, it's the equivalent for artificial intelligence, right? Okay. So there are situations now where people are realizing that there is so much data being generated that there is no way a central authority can really work on it, right? And one example that I read about is uh, now in some of the advanced countries, um, all the traffic um, signals are smart, right? So they're actually generating data, which is fed to central systems to sort of decide what these traffic signals do. For example, if there's an ambulance coming at that signal, it could actually not only give it a green light, but it could also communicate back to the central system to say, hey, this, this is the direction of the ambulance, make all the lights green on this uh, road so that the ambulance has a clear way uh, through, right? So those kind of things are happening. And in fact, I've worked on uh, systems in the UK where bus, bus, uh, in the buses, there are um, sort of uh, boxes that talk to the um, uh, traffic signals and then they set up protocols and they, they kind of work together to give a faster route to some route to some of these buses. Right? So there are things that are happening in that direction. But recently what they have found is with the number of these uh, IoT devices increasing, they have now reached a point where by the time data from all these uh, traffic signals come back to the central authority and the data science works on it and the machine and the artificial intelligence decisions are made and the decisions are sent back, it is, it is too late or I mean, they, they're not able to handle the, the uh, sort of load and they're not able to react in time for the signal to kind of be effective, right? You don't want to be waiting for the signal to be uh, hearing from a central uh, management system for five minutes because other, uh, without that it won't change its uh, state, right? Mm -hmm. So now they are building uh, what they call edge AI, where each of the traffic signals will have its own uh, miniature artificial intelligence and it will take local decisions, okay? Mm -hmm. And then they are, they are actually building platforms, cloud-based platforms for these kind of systems where, where the the computing or the or the artificial or the decision making is the models are built centrally uh, based on the data that's coming in because the 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 world model that you talked about the the world view that is built upon data is available centrally because you have all the data there but then the models are pushed to the edge computing uh, instances and then they start taking local decisions right so so in a way, this is again uh, sort of very natural, right? In the sense that, again, in the, the world, you see those kind of things, right? In a beehive, you might have a queen bee which is making certain decisions, but once the bees go out on their own and start gathering honey, they, they have to take local decisions because they, they, don't, they don't have telephones to communicate back with, the, <laughs> with their central authority, right? So it's, it's the same models we are getting to. You know. <clears throat>
Yeah, that's very interesting. Actually, there are uh, a few more theories that I'd come across, but maybe those could be for a later time. One is uh, the fractals, mm-hmm. and, uh, what is called the chaotic organizations and chaotic setups, where there's both chaos as well as order. And how do you correct? Correct. Yeah. Two. Yeah. Uh, so um, again, keeping in uh, mind the theme of these podcasts, what amuses you about technology? Mm. <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, because again, it's the same thing, right? We've, we've started taking technology so seriously that it kind of becomes a strange question, right? I mean, how can technology and amusement go together? Right? Uh, I think what amuses me is that people sometimes forget that technology can go only so far, right? I mean, a lot of the times there are two kinds of, I mean, I mean, uh, I see this happening in two kinds of scenarios. One scenario is you feel that technology can solve all problems and, and, and it's kind of, um, you give it more credit than you should, right? I mean, you, you believe that uh, just because you're using the best technology, you're using the latest iPhone or the latest Samsung um, um, phone, you, you will be happier, right? In a way, I'm, I'm just taking an ex- extreme example right. that just getting the latest technology will make me the happiest person in the world. So that's one kind of example where we feel that technology can really take away uh, all other aspects uh, and, and make things better without realizing that uh, technology can only do something about um, helping us take decisions or helping us do things better or helping us do things more accurately, uh, but it cannot um, change or it cannot really have an effect on societal stuff, on, on human relation stuff, on, on, on our well-being, unless we are ready to sort of understand and make the changes ourselves within our society, within our own minds, within our uh, interrelationships and all that. The second aspect is um, kind of uh, people uh, think of technology um, as, I mean, people who are too, or or maybe because people are getting so exposed to technology, uh, they kind of start believing the virtual for the real, right? That's also sometimes very funny. And and I've had personal experiences like that, right, where... um, you will sort of, I mean, I, I, I don't know whether it has happened to you, but if you get too used to these uh, modern um, uh, sort of keyless cars where you just press a button and the car uh, unlocks, right? I have at least had a couple of cases where I've, I've looked for a button when I reach home to unlock the door and all that, right? So it's as if I just uh, press that and things will automatically unlock, right? So those kind of things where you go get lost so much in technology that you mix or you sort of get mixed up between the virtual and the real, right? So that's also uh, funny. And, and I've had a lot of friends tell me stories where those kind of things have happened, where um, they have kind of, um, I, I, one of the jokes that I have seen on, on, I think on WhatsApp, which kind of deals with this is uh, maybe, maybe you've come across this, that some, somebody says, I'm trying to, 
I'm trying to uh, replicate my Facebook experience and I've gone, I've started going across the street and telling people what I ate in the morning and how I'm feeling and showing them pictures of my dog. And, uh, and, and I'm, I, and uh, the good thing is I have, a th I have three followers already, uh, but one of them is a policeman. The other is a psychiatrist. And the third one is uh, sort of, uh, a, a, a street vendor who wants me to uh, who wants to get me out of the street as soon as possible because I am distracting people. Right? So, so that's what happens when you kind of mix virtual with real. So that's the funny part where uh, we, we we become so lost in technology that that we forget that it's still uh, very different from our real world. Mm. Yeah, that's I think a very good story to close this session. I guess we can go on. For a long time. Uh, so thank you Sandeep for being a guest and uh, I do have again a whole set of questions or topics that we can discuss uh, probably in one of the future episodes. Sure, sure. Great. I think I, I had a great time too and, and uh, I think some uh, really interesting topics you brought up. So uh, uh, thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Yeah. So if uh, any of our listeners want to reach you uh, would you mind if they reach out to you? We'll probably be sharing your contact details uh, on the page where we will have the podcast. Sure, sure. I'll definitely, uh, I'll definitely provide my Twitter handle and maybe my blog site uh, URL too. Mm -hmm. And I'm also available on LinkedIn, uh, so you can share those. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Sandeep, and have a good weekend. You too. Thank you so much.